Thank you for listening to the Only You Podcast followers. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. This is the month of May, and I've decided on a great author for us to learn about, understand some of the great reads that he's written, and some of the great things that he's done in his life, and that would be Mr. Samuel Clemens. Thank you guys for listening to me, because Samuel Clemens, also known by his pen name, Mark Twain. Uh, Twain was actually raised in Hannibal, Missouri, which later provided the setting for Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. He served as an apprenticeship with a printer and then worked as a typesetter, contributing articles to the newspaper of his older brother, Orion Clemens. He later became a riverboat pilot on the Mississippi River before heading west to join Orion in Nevada. He referred humorously to his lack of success at mining, turning at journalism for the Virginia City Tutorial Enterprise. His humorous story, the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, was published in 1865 based on a story that he heard at Angel's Hotel in Angel's Camp, California, where he spent some time as a miner. This short story brought international attention and was even translated into French. His wit and satire in prose and in speech earned praise from critics and peers, and he was a friend of presidents, artists, industrialists, and European royalty. Oh, industrialist. I'm sorry, you guys. Initially, an ardent American imperialist who spoke out strongly in favor of American interest in the Hawaiian Islands, he later became vice president of the American Anti-Imperialist League from 1901 until his death in 1910, coming out strongly against the Philippine-American War. Twain earned a great deal of money for his writings and lectures, but invested in ventures that lost most of it, such as the Page Compositor, a mechanical typesetter that failed because of its complexity and imprecision. He filed for bankruptcy in the wake of these financial setbacks, but in time overcame his financial troubles with help of Standard Oil executive Henry Hudson Rogers. He eventually paid all creditors in full, even though his bankruptcy relieved him of having to do so. Twain was born shortly after an appearance of Halley's Comet, and he predicted that he would go out with it as well. Dying about a month before the comet passed near Earth in 1910. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And that's a little bit about the author that I've chosen to read his writings to you guys this month. And that's the wonderful Mark Twain. He's been a real inspiration to me all my life. He's really helped me understand... You know, life in the Midwest. His real name's Samuel 
Longhorn Clemens, and he was born November 30th, 1835, and he had the unfortunate, unfortunate death on April 21st, 1910. He was an American writer, humorist, entrepreneur, publisher, and lecturer. So, thank you guys, and I hope that you enjoy Life on the Mississippi, because that's the book that I've chosen to read to you, and I think it's a good read, so here we go. Chapter 1 is The River and Its History. The Mississippi is well worth reading about. It is not a commonplace river, but on the contrary, it is in all ways remarkable. Considering the Missouri its main branch, it is the longest river in the world, 4,300 miles. It seems safe to say that it is also the crookedest river in the world, since in one part of its journey it uses up 1,300 miles to cover the same ground that the crow fl would fly over in 675. It discharges three times as much water as the St. Lawrence, 25 times as much as the Rhine, and 338 times as much as the Thames. No other river has so vast a drainage basin. It draws in water supply from 28 states and territories, from Delaware on the Arctic seaboard, and from all the country between that and Idaho on the Pacific Slope. <clears throat> Excuse me. A spread of 45 degrees of longitude. The Mississippi receives and carries to the Gulf water from 54 subordinate rivers that are navigatable by steamboats, and from some hundreds that are navigatable by flats and keels. The area of its drainage basin is as great as the combined areas of England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, France, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Austria, Italy, and Turkey. And almost all the wide region is fertile. The Mississippi Valley proper is exceptionally so. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. I wanted to share something with you. A friend of mine who is a lawyer out in Phoenix, Arizona, actually decided to run his business remotely last year, and him and his wife took server jobs on a steamboat, paddle boat, on the Mississippi River for the whole summer. He said it was a blast. I'm sure it was. I can only imagine. I've always dreamed of going to Hannibal and taking that um, steamboat all the way to New Orleans. <clears throat> I think it would be a really fun trip, and I think it would be exceptional, you know. It is as remarkable, excuse me, it is a remarkable river in this, that instead of widening towards its mouth, it grows narrower, grows narrower, and deeper. From the junction of the Ohio to the point halfway down to the sea, the width averages a mile in high water, thence to the sea, the widest steadily diminishes until the passes above the mouth it is but little over half a mile at the junction of the ohio the mississippi's depth is 87 feet the depth increases gradually reaching 129 just above the mouth 
The difference in rise and fall is also remarkable. Not in the upper, but in the lower river, the rise is tolerable uniform down to Nanchez, 360 miles above the mouth, about 50 feet, but at Bayou La Fauche, the river rises only 24 feet. At New Orleans, only 15, and just above the mouth, only 2 and 1 half. An article in the New Orleans Times Democrat, based upon reports of able engineers, states that the river annually empties 460 million tons of mud into the Gulf of Mexico, which brings to mind Captain Muret's rude name for the Mississippi, the Great Sewer. The mud solidified would make a mass a mile square and 241 feet high. The mud deposit gradually extends the land, but only gradually. It has extended it not quite a third of a mile in the 200 years which have elapsed since the river took its place in history. The belief of the scientific people is that the mouth used to be at Baton Rouge where the hills cease and that the 200 miles of land between there and the Gulf was built by the river. I wanted to stop here for a second and give you guys a little bit more information that I've learned. I used to work for a company that made tile here in the Midwest and it was for farmers who would you know obviously harvest corn, soybeans and other um, you know, edible plants, but the tile that we made, the co or the company that made the tile actually had research done, and they came to the conclusion that they were dispelling nutrients so fast with their tile, and when it would rain, it would you know deplete the nutrients so quick, and it would put it all in the Mississippi. So they went to Louisiana to you know uh, where it dumped into the Gulf of Mexico. And they tested there and they found that like all the nutrients were so high that it was actually killing fish and wildlife. And there's groups out there, I believe, that um, are kind of like trying to fight that stuff and that are, they're kind of against it. I just wanted to share that because I thought it had a little bit to do with this. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. Now back to Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. The Mississippi is remarkable, and still another way, its disposition to make prodigious jumps by cutting through narrow necks of land and thus straightening and shortening itself. More than once, it had shortened itself 30 miles at a single jump. These cutoffs had curious effects. They have thrown several river towns out into the rural districts and built up sandbars and forests in front of them. The town of Delta used to be three miles below Vicksburg. A recent cutoff has radically changed the position and Delta is now two miles above Vicksburg. Both of these river towns have been retired to the country by that cutoff. A cutoff plays havoc with boundary lines and jurisdictions. For instance, a man is living in the state of Mississippi today. A cutoff occurs tonight and tomorrow. The man finds himself and his land over 
on the other side of the river within the boundaries and subject to the laws of the state of Louisiana. Such a thing happening in the upper river in the old times could have transferred a slave from Missouri to Illinois and made a free man of him. See, because back then at this time, slavery was allowed in Missouri, but not in Illinois. And that's why he included that there, because he lived and it was going on back then when he was alive. And I do want to say this also, the Mississippi River is the divide in the United States for radio stations too. So like WB&Q would be on the east side of the Mississippi and KMMX would be on the west side of the Mississippi. I think that's pretty interesting for the radio stations. Back to life on the Mississippi. The Mississippi does not alter its locality but cuts off alone. It is, excuse me, it is always changing its habitat bodily, is always moving bodily sideways. <clears throat> At hard times, LA, excuse, LA, excuse me, it was abbreviated. At hard times, Louisiana, the river is two miles west of the region it used to occupy. As a result, the original site of that settlement is now in Louisiana at all. That settlement is not now in Louisiana at all. But on the other side of the river, in the state of Mississippi, nearly the whole of that 1,300 miles of Old Mississippi River, which LaSalle floated down in his canoe 200 years ago, is good solid dry ground now. The river lies to the right of it in places and to the left of it in other places. Although the Mississippi's mud builds land but slowly down at the mouth where the gulf's billows interfere with its work, it builds fast enough in, be in better protected regions higher up. For instance, Prophet's Island contained 1,500 acres of land 30 years ago. Since then, the river has added 700 acres to it. But enough of these examples of the mighty streams for the excuse me for that which I present I will give a few more of them further along in the book and thank you guys for if you've picked these books up that I'm reading to you I am so grateful because that's what this podcast is about it's about reading and learning let us drop the Mississippi's physical history and say a word about its historical history so to speak we can, we can glance briefly at its slumberous first epoch in a couple of short chapters, at its second and wider awake epoch in a couple more, at its flushest and widest awake epoch in a good many succeeding chapters, and then talk about its comparatively tranquil present epoch and what shall be left of the book. The world and the books are so accustomed to use and overuse the word new in connection with our country and we early get and permanently retain the impression that there is nothing old about it. We do of course know that there are several comparatively old dates 
in American history, but the mere figures convey to our minds no just idea, no distinct realization of the stretch of time which they represent. To say that DeSoto, the first white man who ever saw the Mississippi River, saw it in 1542, and a remark which states a fact without interpreting it. It is something like giving the dimensions of a sunset by astronomical measurements and cataloging the colors by their specific names. As a result, you get the bold fact of the sunset, but you don't see the sunset. It would be, excuse me, it would have been better to paint a picture of it. The date, 1542, standing by itself, means little and nothing to us. But when one groups a few neighboring historical dates and facts around it, he adds perspective and color, and then realizes that this is one of the American dates, which is quite respectable for age. For instance, when the Mississippi was first seen by a white man, less than a quarter of a century had elapsed since Francis I's defeat of Pavia, the death of Raphael, the death of Bayard, Saint-Pierre et sans Ripocol, the driving out of the Knights Hospitallers from Rhodes by the Turks and placarding of the 95 Propositions, the act which began the Reformation. When DeSoto took his glimpse of the river, Ignatius Loyola was an obscure name. The Order of the Jesuits was not yet a year old. Michelangelo's paint was not yet dry on the Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel. Mary, Queen of Scott, had not yet been born, but would be before the years closed. Catherine de Medici was a child. Elizabeth of England was not yet in her teens. Calvin, Benvenuto, Cellini, and the Emperor Charles V were at the top of their fame and each was manufacturing history after his own peculiar fashion. Margaret of Navarra was writing the Hemptimeron and some religious books. The first survives, the others are forgotten, wit and indelicacy being sometimes better literature preservers than holiness, lax court morals, and the absurd chivalry business were in full feather and the joust and the tournament were the frequent pastime of the titled fine gentlemen who could fight better than they could spell, while religion was the passion of their ladies, and the classifying their offspring into children, to full rank and children by brevet their pastime. In fact, all about, excuse me, in fact, all around, Religion was in peculiar blooming condition. The Council of Trent was being called. The Spanish Inquisition was roasting and racking and burning with a free hand. Elsewhere 
on the continent. The nations were being persuaded to a holy living by the sword and fire in England. Henry VIII had suppressed the monasteries, burnt Fisher and another bishop or two, and was getting his English Reformation and his harem effectively started. When DeSoto stood on the banks of the Mississippi, it was still two years before Luther's death. Even years before the burning of Severtus, thirty years before the St. Bartholomew's slaughter, Shakespeare's Shakespeare was not yet born. A hundred long years must still elapse before Englishmen would hear the name of Oliver Cromwell. Unquestionably, the discovery of the Mississippi is a datable fact which considerably mellows and modifies the shiny new of our country and gives her a most respectable outside aspect of rustiness and antiquity. De Soto merely glimpsed the river, then died and was buried in it by his priests and soldiers. One would expect the priests and soldiers to multiply the river's dimensions by ten, the Spanish custom of the day, and thus move other adventurers to go at once and explore it. On the contrary, their natives, when they reached home, did not excite that amount of curiosity. The Mississippi was left unvisited by whites during a term of years which seems incredible in our energetic days. One may sense the interval to his mind after a fashion by dividing it up in this way after DeSoto glimpsed the river a fraction short of a quarter of a century elapsed and then Shakespeare was born lived a trifle more than half a century, then died, and when he had been in his grave considerably more than half a century, the second white man saw the Mississippi. In our day, we don't allow a 130 years to elapse between glimpses of a marvel. If somebody should discover a creek in the country next to the one that the North Pole is in, Europe and America would start Fifteen costly expeditions, one to explore the creek, and the other fourteen to hunt for each other. For more than a hundred and fifty years, there had been white settlements on our Atlantic coast. These people were in intimate communication with the Indians. In the south, the Spaniards were robbing, slaughtering, enslaving, and converting them. Higher up, the English were trading beads and blankets to them for a consideration and throwing in civilization and whiskey. And in Canada, the French were schooling them in a rudimentary way, missionarying among them and drawing whole populations of them at a time to Quebec and later to Montreal to buy furs of them. Necessarily, then, these various clusters of whites must have heard of the great river of the far west, and indeed, they did hear of it vaguely, so vaguely and indefiantly that its course 
proportions and locality were hardly even guessable. The mere mysteriousness of the matter ought to have fired curiosity and compelled exploration, but this did not occur. Apparently nobody happened to want such a river. Nobody needed it. Nobody was curious about it. So, for a century and a half, the Mississippi remained out of the market and undisturbed. When DeSoto found it, he was not hunting for a river and had no present occasion for one. Consequently, he did not value it or even take any particular notice of it. But, at last, LaSalle the Frenchman conceived the idea of seeking out that river and exploring it. It always happens that when a man seizes upon a neglected and important idea, people inflamed with the same notion crop up all around. It happened so in this instance. Just like it happens to all lottery winners. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Naturally, the question suggests itself. Why did these people want the river now when nobody had wanted it in the five preceding generations? Apparently, it was because at this late day, they thought they had discovered a way to make it useful. For it had come to be believed that the Mississippi emptied into the Gulf of California and therefore afforded a shortcut from Canada to China. Previously, the suspicion had been that it emptied into the Atlantic or the Sea of Virginia. <clears throat> Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. Chapter 2. The River and Its Explorers LaSalle himself sued for certain high privileges and they were graciously accorded him by Louis the 15th of inflated memory chief among them was the privilege to explore far and wide and build forts and stake out continents and hand the same over to the king and pay the expenses himself receiving in return some little advantages of one sort or another. Among them, the monopoly of buffalo hides. He spent several years about all of his money in making peerless and painful trips between Montreal and a fort which he built on the Illinois before he at last succeeded in getting his expedition in such a shape that he could strike for the Mississippi. And you guys, I will say that I've fished many times on the Illinois River and the Fox River in Ottawa, Illinois. It's a beautiful place there. I used to have a picture of the dam there, like from 1921. It was just, a, it's still the same to this day if you go to Starved Rock. It's a beautiful place. Trust me, you gotta check it out sometime. And meantime, other parties had had better fortune. In 1673, Joliet, the merchant, and Marquis, the priest, crossed the country and reached the banks of the Mississippi. 
They went by way of the Great Lakes and from Green Bay in canoes by way of Fox River and the Wisconsin. <laughs> I caught, hey you guys, I caught a gar on the Fox River. And then later in life I seen a fishing show where a guy took out like a twenty two pistol and he shot at an alligator gar and the bullet ricocheted off the gar and he put it back in the water and it swam away with no injury. It was crazy. <laughs> but I wound up catching one once on the Fox River. But anyways, back to Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Marquis had solemnly contracted on the feast of the Immaculate Conception that if the Virgin would permit him to discover the Great River, he would name it Conception in her honor. He kept his word, and in that day, all explorers traveled with an outfit of priests. DeSoto had 24 with him. LaSalle had several also. The expedition were often out of me and scant of clothes, but they always had the furniture and other requisites for the mass. They were always prepared as one of the quaint chroniclers of the time phrased it to explain hell to the savages interesting on the 7th <coughs> excuse me guys sorry um fighting a cold that's weird i've had more colds in the last couple of years than i've ever had in my life it's terrible on the 17th of june 1673 the canoes of joliet and excuse me joliet and marquette and their five subordinates reached the junction of the Wisconsin with the Mississippi. Mr. Parkman says before them a wide and rapid current coursed athwart their way by the foot of lofty heights wrapped thick in forest. He continues, turning southward, they paddled down the stream through a solitude unrelieved by the faintest trace of man. A big catfish collided with Marquette's canoe and startled him, and reasonably enough, for he had been warned by the Indians that he was on a foolhardy journey and even a fatal one, for the river contained a demon whose roar could be heard at a great distance and who would engulf them in the abyss where he dwelt. I have seen a Mississippi catfish that was more than six feet long and weighed 250 pounds. And if Marquette's fish was the fellow to that one, he had a fair right to think the river's roaring demon was come. At length, the buffalo began to appear, grazing in herds on the great prairies, which then boarded the river, and Marquette describes the fierce and stupid look of the old bulls as they stared at the intruders through the tangled mane which nearly blinded them. The voyagers moved cautiously, landed at night, and made a fire to cook their evening meal, then extinguished it. Embarking again, paddling some way farther, and anchoring in the stream, keeping a man on the watch till morning and I'm sure they did that probably for maybe savage 
well, what they would call savage Indians or, well, probably Indians thinking they were invading their territory. They did this day after day and night after night. And at the end of two weeks, they had seen, they had not seen a human being. The river was in awful solitude then, and it is now over most of its stretch. But at the close of the fortnight, they one day came upon the footprints of men in the mud, the western bank, a Robinson Crusoe experience which carries an electric shiver with it. Yet, when one stumbles on it in print, they had been warned that the river Indians were so furious, fierce and pitless as the river demon and destroyed all comers without waiting for provocation. But no matter, Joliet and Marquette struck into the country to hunt up the proprietors of the tracks. They found them by and by and were hospitably received and well treated if to be received by an Indian chief who has taken off his last rag in order to appear at his level best is to be received hospitably and if to be treated abundantly to fish, porridge, and other game, including dog, and have these things forked into one's mouth by the ungloved fingers of Indians, is to be well treated. In the morning, the chief and six hundred of his tribesmen escorted the Frenchmen to the river and bade them a farewell, friendly goodbye. On the rocks above the present city of Alton, which, that's in Illinois. They found some rude and fantastic Indian paintings, which they described. A short distance below, a torrent of yellow mud rushed furiously athwart the calm blue current of the Mississippi, boiling, surging, and sweeping in its course, logs, branches, and uprooted trees. This was the mouth of the Missouri. The Missouri as my aunts and uncles would always say back in the 80s. They were only 90-some years old. This was the mouth of the Missouri, that savage river which, descending from its mad career through a vast unknown of bar barbarism, poured its turbid floods into the bosom of its gentle sister. By and by, they passed the mouth of the Ohio. Past cane breaks, they fought mosquitoes. They floated along, day after day, through the deep silence and loneliness of the river, drowsing in the scant shade of the makeshift awnings, and boiling with the heat. They encountered and exchanged civilized with another party of Indians, at last they reached the mouth of the Arkansas, about a month out from their starting point, where a tribe of war-whooping savages swarmed out to meet and murder them, but they appealed to the vir Virgin for help, 
So in place of a fight, there was a feast and plenty of pleasant food and dance. They had proved to their satisfaction that the Mississippi did not empty into the Gulf of California or into the Atlantic. They believed it emptied into the Gulf of Mexico. They turned back now and carried their great news to Canada. But belief is not proof. It was reserved for La Salle to furnish the proof. He was provokingly delayed by one misfortune after another, but at last got his expedition underway at the end of the year 1681. In the dead of winter, he and Henry de Tonte, son of Lorenzo Tonte, who invented the Tontine, his lieutenant started down the Illinois with a following of eighteen excuse me, eighteen Indians brought from New England and twenty three Frenchmen. They moved in procession down the surface of the frozen river on foot and dragged their canoes after them on sledges. At Peoria Lake, they struck open water and paddled thence to the Mississippi and turned their plows southward. And if you've never been to Peoria, Illinois, you've got to go there in the fall. It's gorgeous. Lake Peoria is gorgeous. They plowed through the fields of floating ice past the mouth of the Missouri past the mouth of the Ohio, by and by, and gliding by the waste of bordening swamp, landed on the 24th of February near the 3rd Chickasaw Bluffs, where they halted and built Fort Padumhome. Again, says Mr. Parkman, they embarked, and with every stage of their adventurous progress, the mystery of this vast new world was more and more unveiled. And more and more, they entered the realms of spring, the hazy sunlight, the warm and drowsy air, the tender foliage, the opening flowers that betokened the reviving life of nature. Day by day, they floated down the great bends and the shadow of the dense forest, and in time arrived at the mouth of the Arkansas. First, they were greeted by natives of this locality as Marquette had before been greeted by them with the booming of the war drum and the flourish of arms the virgin composed the excuse me the virgin composed the difficulty in Marquette's case the pipe of peace did the same office for La Salle the white man and the red man struck hands and entertained each other during three days then, to the administration of the savages, La Salle set up a cross with the arms of France on it and took possession of the whole country for the king the cool fashion of the time while the priests piously consecrated the robbery with a hymn. The priests explained the mysteries of the faith by signs for the saving of the savages, thus comprehending then them with possible possessions in heaven for the certain 
ones on earth, which they had just been robbed of. And also by signs LaSalle drew from these simple children of the forest acknowledgments of Feltry to Louis the Putrid over the water. Nobody smiled at these colossal ironies. The performances took place on the site of the future town of Napoleon, Arkansas, and there the first confiscation, excuse me, confiscation cross was raised on the banks of the Great River. Marquette and Joliet's voyage of discovery ended at the same spot, the site of the future town of Napoleon. When DeSoto took his fleeting glimpse of the river, away back in the dim early days, he took it from the same spot, the site of the future town of Napoleon, Arkansas. Therefore, three out of the four memorable events connected with the discovery and exploration of the mighty river occurred by accident in one and the same place. It is a most curious distinction when one comes to look at it and think about it. France stole that vast country on that spot, the future Napoleon, and by and by Napoleon himself was to give the country back again, make restitution not to the owners, but to their white American heirs. The voyagers journeyed on touching here and there, past the sites since becoming historic of Vicksburg and Grand Gulf, and visited an imposing Indian monarch in the Teke country, whose capital city was a substantial one of sun-baked bricks mixed with straw, better houses than many that existed there now. The chief's house contained an audience room 40 feet square, and there he received Tonte in state. Surrounded by 60 old men clothed in white cloaks, there was a temple in the town with a mud wall about it ornamented with skulls of enemies sacrificed to the sun. The voyagers visited the Natchez Indians near the site of the present city of that name where they found a religious and political wonderful site at a privileged class descended from the sun a temple and sacrificed fire it must have been like getting home again it was home with an advantage in fact for it lacked Louis the Fifteenth. A few more days swept swiftly by, and La Salle stood in the shadow of his confiscating cross. At the meeting of the waters from Delaware, and from Itasca, and from the mountain ranges close upon the Pacific, with the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, his task finished. His prodigy achieved, 
Mr. Parkman, and closing his fascinating narrative, thus sums up. One day, the realm of France received on parchment a stupendous accession. The fertile plains of Texas, the vast basin of the Mississippi, from frozen north springs to sultry borders of the Gulf, from the woody ridges of the Alleghenies to the bare peaks of the Rocky Mountains, a region of savannas and forests, sun-cracked deserts, and grassy prairies watered by thousands of rivers, ranged by a thousand warlike tribes passed beneath the scepter of the Sultan of Versailles, and all by virtue of a feeble human voice inaudible at a half mile. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. I do appreciate you listening and tuning in. This is Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain.